0: What really gets my dick hard is... Welcome to the Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And this is episode 21, where we are talking about the Metallica documentary, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, which of course is the making of the Black Album. And we are just doing part one on this episode.
1: Yeah, it's really long. There's a lot of really good content there. We're, we're, I'm forever grateful to the boys for putting all that stuff down on film.
0: Yeah, and that kind of, I mean, in a way, even though they released Cliff All earlier... This kind of marks the beginning of them kind of having cameras around them all the time because they still do it.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, w- Obviously, we're benefiting from it, but it is weird to watch it. Like, I burnt it down last night. It's like they always just had cameras around them. That's got to be kind of yeah. weird.
0: It's got to be weird. I'd imagine after a while you just get used to it and you, you learn how to ignore the, the fact that there's guys standing there with cameras in your face. Um, and you can tell in this documentary that there's – many moments where they're uncomfortable with it and you know there's a whole i think even during the credits there's a whole little montage of them like flipping off the camera and stuff right
1: i'm glad well i'm glad that it's Um, good for all of us if they got used to it and and got on board with it
0: i'm glad too man i'm really glad um especially in in this era
1: i know i could watch like all the raw footage too i'd be fine just watching this the rest of my life
0: Oh yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's all I'm doing the rest of my life is just watching the raw footage from this era.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to my wife and my child. I can't be present in your lives anymore because I'm just watching 150,000 hours of raw footage of Metallica.
0: Yeah. I can't, I cannot raise my daughter anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: before we get into talking about a year and a half in the life, we're going to read a few things as usual. We're recording this kind of right after our death magnetic episode, so We don't have as much feedback to read, which by the way, as of right now, death magnetic in its first week is our highest listened to episode
0: yeah it's our it's our best week we've had since we 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 started this podcast four months ago which is insane in a matter of a week we saw this huge spike in listens so i don't know if it's i I mean i I can only imagine it's a bunch of new listeners so if you're out there and you're new to the podcast welcome welcome to the
1: ride so here and
0: if you're new i I was gonna real quick before you start i I was gonna say if, if you are new to listening to this uh I just want to give a quick little thing uh, where you can find us on social media to, to get other content and see what we're doing. Upcoming episodes, things like that. You can go to Instagram, it's Metal Up Your Podcast. Twitter, Metal Up Your Cast. You can email us at Show at gmail.com. And if you feel like supporting us financially to help uh, us with, you know, merchandise, things like that, uh, free giveaways, it's Patreon.com slash MetalUpYourPodcast.
1: All right. Boom.
0: Boom. Got it done.
1: All I heard was kachin, ching kachin. Ching 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 ching. This sounded sk- like a
0: casino. I'm just kidding. We're
1: <laughs> definitely not getting rich on this. So, uh, first few little things we'll read here uh, from Twitter. Lisa, who is at Live Music Junkie, writes, uh, "I love the All Metallica podcast. Nicely done. Enjoying listening while working." Okay.
0: Hey, I think no a lot problem. of I
1: think a lot of people listen while they're at work, which begs the question: Does your employer know <laughs> that you're listening to this while you're working? I'm going to
0: say no, <laughs> and that's fine with me because. I would almost compare it to. Yeah, I would almost compare it to when I was in high school and I was in like whatever class and I had like one of my little, you know, headphone ends. We didn't call them earbuds back then, but, you know, had one little headphone in while I'm doing like math or something. And I had like Megadeth planer or Metallica. So good and on you. Ya. Damn, you were, damn the man.
1: And you were listening to metal up your podcast in high school.
0: Yeah, I was listening to our podcast. It was weird. It was a time machine uh, cassette Walkman I had.
1: <laughs> uh, Wayne Lafleur, uh, who is at Sydney, Jackie says, "I'm a lifer fan, and listening to your podcast actually helps me rediscover greatness in albums I've heard a thousand times." Thank you.
0: Wow. All right. Very cool.
1: Nice.
0: Uh, nice.
1: In email world, we have Joe Caps 1988 writes another great episode. I'm glad you didn't plan. I'm glad you don't plan on ditching Torben and Dave which if you hadn't heard it previous of course, episode... Of course not. Well, we're here for you, Joe Caps, 1988. <laughs> uh, I'm also glad to hear I'm not completely alone in preferring Reload over Load, which I believe he's talking to me. Uh, I, I get believe that, so. I get that it's the same sound quality in recording sessions, but I prefer more of the songs from Reload. I can agree Kill em All doesn't need to be re-recorded, and I enjoy those songs, but I don't find myself listening to that album straight through like I do Ride the Lightning Puppets, Hardwired Justice... And Black Album. The other five albums have yeah. songs I tend to skip. And I would also like to point out that even my least favorite Metallica al- albums are still kick-ass. Except the one. We know. Except the
0: one. And and you know that we know.
1: And you know that we know that you know, that I know. Ex- exactly. That James Hetfield knows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gene Froman writes, hey guys, I saw on the Met Club forums that Jason called into Metal Injection live cast last night. The majority of the episode is shit, but there's a 15-minute segment with Jason that starts at 1.44 that's really interesting. And I guess he talks about uh, how you know, his back issues got him into art because he had to take a break from playing bass. It's Jason right. kind of weighs in on the Lady Gaga thing. He talks about kind of his financial ties to Metallica. Uh, so if that interests you, which it definitely interests me, you can go to Melinjection.com and kind of see this cool new interview with Jason. Uh, yeah, she, very cool. She, she says, anyhow, the Jason episode you guys did was really good. And I thought this was an interesting development to hear from him. Thanks, Gene. Yep. That's very cool. And you should check out our Jason Newsett episode anyway, because there's a nice little church giggle nugget there at the end, a little treat
0: for you all. Oh man, there definitely is. I actually had a friend text me yesterday. Hey, what episode did you and Clint, uh, have the church giggles? <laughs> I need to listen to that right now. I'm ha- not having a great day. <laughs> oh. well, <that's laughs> he good. wanted to hear some laughter. That's
1: good. I, there's a little bit of it in the Fleming episode as well. Yeah, yeah. The last email we will read is from Steamroller Action. He's written back in. Now, this is an interesting email because it's yeah, buddy. it's proof of what I have long believed my my purpose here is in this podcast. He says, "Hey Clint, listening now and I think you've accomplished your goal. I will give Load and Reload a serious listen. Actually, you've, your discussion of Better than You intrigued me. I'm fine with them being experimental. It's the going for the mass audience that spoiled Black Album for me. You guys should do a Did They or Didn't They Sell Out?" Uh, I felt betrayed then, and they were quote-unquote dead to me, but now I'm good with the Black Album. They made four amazing albums. They, deserve, wow. they deserved to go for the masses, and I'm not even saying it's necessarily for the money. In my humble opinion, they've always wanted to take over the world, but I still think they sold out. Anyway, thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, that's an interesting... It's interesting.
0: And, and, and is he talking about Load and Reload selling out?
1: He's kind of drawing parallels to Load and Reload and Black Album. I, I think he's mainly talking about Black Album. Okay but this is a dude yeah. who wrote in and said that he literally has never listened to Load or reload. So I wrote back like dude, wow. You got it. You got to at least fucking check them out. Yeah. Before you before I don't think you, you can make a, a,
0: a, an a, yeah, you can't make an educated decision if you've never heard of them. But, like I feel like I can make an educated decision on Saint Anger cuz I've listened to it one time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that yeah, I'm about four ahead of you. That's it. Uh, but yeah. he, but he, th- here's the deal, man. He's checking out these records that he wrote off because the podcast has a contagious vibe about it. That's getting people fucking excited. Right.
0: Exactly. You know, I think what we've accomplished is we're we're getting people to take that journey over to the refrigerator and find that slice of pizza that they uh, hid in the back so long ago. They
1: didn't even know that that slice was still in there, man. It's it was just, probably
0: in the free. It was probably in the freezer.
1: Yeah, it, it was in like a freezer under a bunch of like Coors Light cans or something.
0: <laughs> exploded Coors Light cans This
1: exploded in the freezer like 150 years ago uh and yeah, that yeah that brings us to the end of our our wonderful email segment
0: well that's a very that's a very cool last email for sure from steamroller action
1: okay you want to talk about a year and a half in the life
0: uh no I'm cool <laughs> all right see ya <laughs> that's it guys see you later
1: <laughs> Uh, to me, year and a half in the life is the documentary that just keeps on giving because I've seen it maybe ten times and I still don't yeah. don't get tired of it. It's such a cool little document of the Black Album. I'm and where with the, you. Yeah, where the guys were, even like to the point of like kind of how they joke and like the clothes they're wearing, especially Bob Rock. Man, Bob Rock's fashion vibes.
0: Oh my gosh, you can you. I think you can tell throughout the documentary that they started like, you know, sliding some some Metallica merch across the table to him because he wears <laughs> like these. I think at one point, James calls it a dress. Can yeah, I try that yeah. dress on when, yeah, I, yeah. when they're up in Vancouver? But he wears these just like baggy, like something like your grandma would wear. And then every once in a while, you'll see him like in a Metallica shirt. And you know that one of those dudes were like, hey, um, can you just wear this instead? They're like, we are
1: filming this for a documentary. We do plan on releasing. So, Or it would either be like the, yeah. the, the moo vibe that James mentioned. Or yeah. it would be like this really tight white turtleneck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right he, and let's not forget his assistant the engineer uh, I forget his name off the top of my head but there's a scene where they're both in these like Moo button-ups <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean was that just like the, the if you're making rock records in the early 90s was it just Moo city I mean
0: I guess I don't know although that the, the engineer does make a funny joke when like Hetfield's in the room and he, and he farts and they all kind of get out of the room because it smells so bad he and he makes that joke like when I walked in here the shirt was white my
1: shirt was white yeah and not that
0: it would still, not that it would make it a cool shirt if it was white.
1: And I, I couldn't really tell. I actually paused it and tried to zoom in a few times. But I think old Bob Rock's wearing a goddamn fanny pack in some of these
0: scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, where where, where else are you going to keep your chapstick?
1: <laughs> your chapstick? I don't I mean, know. This is the
0: first thing I thought of to put in a fanny pack. Where
1: else are you going to keep your gold platinum record for Dr. Feelgood, other than that nice yeah. early 90s fanny pack?
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs>
1: All right, so we don't really have many facts because this is a documentary of facts. So it was produced by Juliana Roberts, directed by Adam Dubin. Which who knows what either of those people have ever done since then? I don't know. It was released. <laughs> probably done a
0: lot, but we just didn't look it up. Well, they can there's re- no need. We're not talking. We're not talking about them.
1: Uh, if they can come on, they want to come on the show. They can write to us. Metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. It was released yeah. as a double VHS pack. Now, how about that's a little blast from the past.
0: Well, I, you know, at one point in my, uh, in, in my VHS history, I did own this double pack
1: in your VHS history. Yeah. Take a, <laughs> take which take a, is
0: w- well, <laughs> which is well documented.
1: Take a walk with me through Ethan's VHS history, if you will. Yes. <laughs> it was released on November 17th, 1992. And I, I, f- I was too young probably to get it Like as soon as it came out. I'm sure I watched it soon after that. I probably watched it in 93 or 94, but that was probably pretty exciting for those of you who were like hardcore on the ride at that time.
0: Well, I can tell you from personal experience, when it came out, I bought it. And it it was, for me, it was the first kind of, because this is before I owned any other music documentaries. This is before Behind the Music on VH1, things like that. This is the first, like, Behind the scenes of a band I love, thing I ever saw. Right. So to me, it was insanely exciting just to see. And I was, you know, I was, I was new to playing guitar at the time. I think I, at that point, i been playing guitar for about three years. I knew nothing about recording, but just to see these guys that were like my heroes, like make this record that I love so much, was so exciting as, as a young little Metallica buck.
1: Well, and I wonder too. Like, do you think? Okay, I guess it could be either of these or both, but it's like they either made it because they knew they were about to make one of the biggest records of their career, or maybe they made it knowing that they were going in a different direction, and maybe they made it as sort of like a way to sort of gently bring their fans along with them into the sort of more hard rock mainstream vibe.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, or if if they knew they were being super ambitious with this record and it was something completely different, like why not bring Mm -hmm. the fans along so they don't feel like we completely sold out or something, you know, because obviously that's a, a common thing with this record that people say. So maybe it's like, hey, come with us on this journey, and you'll see kind of why we're doing this and why we're experimenting with new sounds and, and, and not a thrash record and all this stuff. You, um, you, and, just, and just to see all the fucking hard work that went into that record.
1: Do you think there was any talk about pizza and flavors and slices in the fridge?
0: Maybe. There might have been a little ketchup and mustard in there. but a
1: little ketchup and mustard? Um, a little ketchup
0: and mustard. Maybe some relish.
1: So the the intro of the film and they've kind of bookended too is this kind of it does this is one of the only moments of the doc it's that cheesy. doesn't age well where it's like no. they're like smelting uh, like steel and shit and it, they're making the Metallica logo
0: <laughs> yeah
1: is that what they're doing? I don't yeah. even know what they're doing what it, is it
0: yeah it's like they're melting steel and they're and they're make they have and then you know it's under the impression they have like this Metallica like you metal, know cast the that they pour the metal in. Yeah then they like we open it up and it's like the Metallica logo. Now, I will say I would love to have a <laughs> steel Metallica logo in my home right above my bed or something, but um but it is I, it's a little cheesy. It, but-
1: yeah, it's like it's like the beginning of Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one where Freddy's like making his yeah. glove in like a goddamn boiler room.
0: Yeah, but it doesn't, it, you're right, it doesn't hold up. I remember watching that thinking it was the coolest thing, like thinking that like somebody actually did that, like they actually melted down steel. They could have, but it doesn't really appear to be that way. You don't see the whole process.
1: It does, I tell you what makes it kind of saves it a little bit is that the music playing over it is the My Friend of Misery, and it's pretty bitching.
0: Yeah. I love that, they, yeah, the first thing you hear is Jason's bass line on that. Uh, it's so cool.
1: And then it's sort of, which I think this is a good sort of front end thing, too, that kind of cuts to the, the, the midnight of the release night where they're yeah. just showing different record stores and like kind of showing the how excited people were for that record.
0: Yeah, and I think it's mostly uh, a lot of that footage is from the Tower Records on Sunset in L.A. Right, right um because there's there's uh, and you may not be as familiar with this as uh, as me because it was a kind of a california thing but uh can K- AC was like the big hard rock station when I was growing up okay um pure rock went a five point five um but yeah I remember like the the dj's a couple of DJs were down there like calling into the radio station talking about how crazy it was down there and um so it was cool to see that footage at the very beginning it, to kind of start the documentary off like this is what this documentary ends up you know where it ends up at, you know, like this is the product that we just worked on. So now let's go back in time and show you how we did it.
1: I wonder if we have any listeners who were, who were in that, who were like kid, like teenagers when that shit, you know,
0: like, I hope that that dude, I, I hope that that dude with like the Afro, oh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? He's talking
1: about wherever I may roam. <laughs> He's like, it's just about how I can't even do his voice. He has a really strange voice about how like, yeah, even when you die, you like live on. I'm like, I didn't know that's yeah. what that song was about. Uh,
0: probably. I think it's just about touring. I think it's just about actually. touring,
1: but <laughs> you made it into this like a metaphysical philosophical thing. Uh, yeah, I
0: love the I love the clip of like the father and son headbanging outside of Tower Records. It does make me when wonder. When they're waiting in line.
1: It does make me wonder too like I'm like man, how many of these really excited people got home and are like that steamroller action guy who wanted to th- who threw it away immediately.
0: Yeah. Well, you do hear in the clips of, of the record store, you do hear people yelling out song titles because they had been playing stuff yeah, on the saying, radio. Yeah,
1: they're saying like the Unforgiven and.
0: and saying, man, I understand, man. I hear I think I, um, you heard someone yell through the never. So I think most people w- were there w- were probably stoked on it. But I mean, there was I'm sure were plenty of people in line that got in there, put the cassette in their car when they you know, drove down Sunset Boulevard and were like, what the fuck is this? And then
1: had to immediately go find a steamroller.
0: Yeah, because that's what you do when you don't like a record. I'm still looking for a steamroller to borrow for Saint Anger.
1: Yeah, it's only like three thousand dollars a day to rent one. No big deal.
0: I'd be worth it. Uh, maybe.
1: Uh, so the, <laughs> the first kind of, so then then so then yeah, you're right. Like they kind of show this the excitement, the pandemonium for this new Met record. Yeah, and then they sort of start you. Then you're in one on one studios, kind of bird's eye view or fly on the wall, yeah. or whatever, whatever that saying is and uh, yeah. and they're showing you how they piece together Inner Sandman I like how they kind of came out of the gate with yeah. arguably you know the biggest song on the record and maybe even the biggest song of their career
0: yeah for sure yeah and, and I love that you know, Kirk talks about coming up with that riff a little bit um, and yeah just cool to see like different variations of things in it like it's you know there, there wasn't anything that was drastically different of what they showed but like even Kirk's little lead going into the second verse when they first show him tracking that it's a little different from what ended up on the record.
1: Right, because here's one of the new things that they did in this record that that Bob brought to the table, which if you heard our Black Album episode, you've heard us gush all about this. We love Bob Rock, we love what he did with these, his first three records with the band we really love. Uh, But he had them all track the drums together in the room, where the drums, yeah. the drums were going to the master tape, but everything else the guys were doing was going to get thrown away and overdubbed later. But it it does bring kind of a live band feeling to that record that I do think yeah. is missing in the Justice record.
0: I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And you get to see Jason's sweet glasses. I'm that a, are still very 80s looking. It's
1: so cute though, with his like super like punk metal hair.
0: Yeah, and then he also has that like old guy, uh, ba- guitar strap on his bass with like, it's all, uh, he looks like a huge piece of like wool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you notice yeah. noticed that. What,
1: what's that for? What is that?
0: Comfort? It's for comfort. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe he was having, I'm serious. I, I've never owned one, but you'll see like, it's like old, it's like something you see on the rigs of dad account on Instagram. <laughs> like yeah, some guy with a huge, like wool padded guitar strap. And it's just like over the shoulder. I think it's just to prevent, you know, shoulder damage or something. So who knows? Maybe Jason was having some pain already in his shoulder or back back then. But he was also sitting down wearing it, which is weird, so.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. Here's an interesting thing. Speaking of, like, studio stuff and being musicians, yeah. uh, if if this is going to bore you guys, maybe just tune out for a few minutes. But um, (laughs) it's very fascinating that James, in the early 90s, was cutting his vocals without headphones in the live room with big-ass monitors pointed at him. And what they did was... So you normally yeah. wear headphones because you don't want what you're listening to to bleed through your vocal mic. I mean, that's how right. most vocals are cut. They're, you isolate the what's coming out of your mouth. But yeah. they do this really neat thing where they – they you can see it in A Year and a Half in Life where they have these two big-ass monitors really close to them. But they have them set – the engineers have set them in such a way that they phase out. So none of the sound goes into the microphone because of the way they position them.
0: From an engineering standpoint, that still kind of blows my it's mind. It's amazing. That they can do that. There, I, there's like a couple clips where he has headphones on, but I mean, for the yeah, the majority of it, he's not doing that. And then, and also, Bob Rock can talk to him from the control room through those speakers. And and I mean, I, I get it, man. Like I I, I actually did that on um, I did a bit of that when I recorded my last EP at Paul Moke's studio. Uh, I've read numerous things that Bono does that when he records U two records. Um, and it, you know, I think it's just a matter of him wanting to get in that zone, like feel like he's doing it live, like with the band there. And just has that crank, so he can, you know, get get in the mood to sing what he what ended up on the black album.
1: Well, and what he does a lot now is, you'll, you, I'm sure you guys have seen this. In, it's in some kind of monster. It's in the uh, Death Magnetic making of. It's in all the uh, Hardwired videos. Is he uses what's called a Shure SM7, which is a dynamic microphone. So a condenser microphone uh, is very sensitive, picks up almost everything in a room and that's what most people use yeah. on vocals and sm7 is called a dynamic microphone so it doesn't really pick up anything other than what you're directly putting into it so you'll see if you guys have seen that black microphone Correct, yeah. how would you describe it it's like cylindrical it's black you can see him holding it a lot in all these videos
0: yeah it's like or uh imagine like most singers you see footage of there's a what's usually an sm58 on the mic stand imagine something like that but it's a lot wider and uh you can actually like hold it you don't have to always have it on a mic stand in the studio. You can actually hold it and track vocals. It's a really quiet mic, which is very cool. <clears throat>
1: it's a great, but it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great rock and roll mic. Like Michael Jackson used it. And obviously Metallica has yeah. been using it probably since they got hip to it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I, yeah, I thought so, that so if you, yeah.
0: If you're not an audio person, you know, like for instance, right now, Clint's recording on, on a, a condenser mic. And like in our last episode, he was in the back of a bus. You could kind of hear the noise of a generator. That's the, that's what they do. They pick up, a ton of sound in the room and like I'm currently recording on a SM a beta 58 so it's a very directional mic you know if I move it away from my face you're not going to hear me hardly at all yeah give him an example it's kind of like this and then I, you know, I move it away and it's like that and then I come back here and it's like this
1: whereas if you listen, to my, if you listen to my condenser I'm going to move away from my microphone exactly the way Ethan just did and I'm moving away and I'm moving away and I'm moving away and it's probably still kind of loud and I'm moving away how was that yeah,
0: not much of a difference <laughs> This has been Audio 101 with Ethan and Clint.
1: <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, I did have the thought because so there's footage of them in the studio, right? Then there's like individual interview footage of them, which they're sitting in this really weird room with this really weird like steel mic stand looking thing in front of them. What is that?
0: I th- I, I think it's a, it might, it might be an old microphone.
1: Is there a microphone Somebody in Somebody
0: that. It? Well, that thing that's sitting right in front of him—it's on a mic stand. It looks like a weird mic stand,
1: but I don't know—I didn't see a microphone in it.
0: I don't know. I, I just—I always thought that it was just some kind of weird old mic or something. I don't know. If you're like a nerdy nerdy audiophile out there and you know what that is, let us know because we're not really sure.
1: But I did have the thought where, like, because you know, everyone else in the band is sort of sitting normally, but Lars is sitting like yeah. in a way where his <laughs> knees are up high. He's got this like silk or satin purple shirt all the way unbuttoned. He seems a little... It's
0: probably one of Bob Rock's shirts. He
1: seems he seems a little tweaked. And I did think, like, I wonder if... He this, may
0: have done cocaine right before that interview. <laughs> I
1: th- I just feel like I wonder if this kind of Lars flavor is why people think he's a douchebag. Because
0: I, I well, mentioned well, I on mean, our last uh, real, revisited... Like just real cocky and, and...
1: Yeah, but it's, like, kind of what I like about him now. But I can see how that might have been, like, oh, tone it down, Lars... He's
0: like flipping his hair around and stuff. It's
1: pretty funny, dude. (laughs) It is hilarious. Uh, and then when they get to James, like in this first little portion of the interview, he starts talking about sort of how after justice, which was arguably one of their more complicated records, at least until death magnetic, they just wanted to start writing more direct, simpler songs. They wanted their songs to have more muscle and power kind of flexing a muscle, less of like long intricate stuff and more like the grooves, the riffs, the tone. Yeah. Uh, it doesn 't sound at all like he's saying we 're trying to sell out. It sounds like he 's following his path as an artist that 's what i that 's my makeup, yeah i
0: it? I totally agree I, it, it doesn 't sound like they 're selling out at all it's it, it, to me it sounds like he is he made a huge evolvement in his songwriting from justice to the black album right you know maybe influenced by what he was listening to at the time but I mean this is where I think he became like a legit like songwriter I mean the early stuff still had amazing parts and amazing choruses and stuff, but i mean the stuff on the Black album, I mean, it's it's amazingly well written, especially tracks like the "Unforgiven."
1: Yeah, I agree. It's funny too to see them kind of joking with each other too. Like at at one yeah. p- at one point, Bob says something like, "All right, let's do let's do it again with little little more peppery, a little more weight." And Laura says, yeah. "Laura says if you want weight, I'm your fucking guy." And James says, "Yeah, he'll make you wait forever."
0: <laughs> I'm like that's pretty. I, know, I, I love that in, that in that scene. Lars tries to be so cool, like if you want, wait, I'm your fucking guy. And it was just kind of quiet for a second before James chimed in. That's a
1: great little joke.
0: Totally, I love when Bob Rock's play, in his white turtleneck playing the Rick Well, he's uh, he's
1: talking about like the shit he's done, but he's naming all these kind of obscure like Canadian bands, and he's like, oh, he it, to, we
0: did the Subhumans, which was cool. Yeah, that was the, the first band he's talking about with guys like he oh, was that was Shithead in that band.
1: Yeah, and he's like, yeah, we did that song, let's go to fucking Hawaii. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which, dude, I wish I wrote a song called "Let's Go to Fucking Hawaii." <laughs> well, we, we can, we can still do it. That's true.
1: Uh actually
0: we should write a song called Let's Go to Fucking New Jersey.
1: Let's go to fucking Poland, New Jersey. (laughs) 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 There is a clip of Jason talking about how and we mentioned this, uh we've mentioned this several times when we talk about Bob Rock about how he seemed to kind of be the first producer to have the courage or the self-confidence to tell them to tell them when something was good, when it wasn't good, and
0: yeah, Jason for sure. talks
1: about how at first that was pretty tough for James, you know, like because Bob was saying things like, "Hey, let's make this shorter. Let's get to a chorus sooner," you know, kind of classic producer shit. Yeah, and how at first James kind of resisted it, but Jason goes on to say that you know, it, even though it rubbed James when they tried the idea, it usually made the song better.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm sure he learned as they recorded this you know, over months and months that this is why they hired Bob Rock, you know. They're they they're not they're to co-produce it with them. They're, of course, they have their ideas. That, you know, especially Lars, you know, hovering over the control board as he does. But I mean, this is why you hire a producer of Bob Rock's caliber. It's like, hey, you need to come in here and help us get all this shit together.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, I think Bob Rock comes. It gets really heated a little later in the film, but he comes, yeah. he comes off looking real pro to me. And when you got a record like I the agree. Black Album to show for it, it's like, man. They really needed that. Not that their other, I mean, they did. Everything they did before the Black Album is stellar, but um, you guys know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, to, to achieve what the Black Album beca- became, they needed Bob Rock.
1: So then it kind of shows them doing Sabbath True, which is pretty fun because it's kind of showing them get that real gnarly chugga chugga shit.
0: Oh, and James is playing the baritone. Yeah, and it's, and, and and he's <laughs> and the the cameraman do the cheesy like oh the room is shaking things are falling off the
1: <laughs> table. They were going to go on to win an Oscar for this documentary for sure.
0: There's a there's a couple like cheesy like video editing things like the little sound effect things from time to time. I don't think really hold up. <laughs> like when there's that stripper that comes into the studio oh, and like her that it goes it's it's just cheesy. That scene.
1: The, like I get it they're rock stars and stuff like and that's fine and I I have 0% uh puritanical prudishness about, about any of that but it is weird to see them yeah. with like playboys like on their music stands and Lars has got like know. pornography like <laughs> by his drums I'm like come
0: on dudes and you wonder why 3 of the 4 of them went through a divorce it's, through this record it's
1: kind of <laughs> redneck rednecky Little redneck. Yeah. I can't imagine doing a session in Nashville and just thinking, like, all right, I'm going to have my my <laughs> my carnage guy put, okay, up, my- put up my pornography all over my music stand for me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I can play this country song. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so then we move on to Unforgiven, which is a pr- kind of a treat to see. They, they show a lot of Unforgiven yeah. throughout the whole thing, but they start really showing the sort of nuts and bolts of, of it. Yeah. And, and they show that argument where... It's sort of that classic scene where James is like, Lars wants him to sing the "New Blood Joins This Earth," but he wants to take yeah. a break from it because his voice is tired. And Lars is like, yeah. "Just sing. It's just one verse and one chorus." And James famously, yeah, says, I think Bob Rock's coming, trying to get him to do it too. Yeah. Well, they're like, "Come." on. It's, yeah, it's kind of like, "All right, just sing the fucking song."
0: Yeah, I love I love James's response, though.
1: Yeah, if you want someone to sing it, sing it yourself. And, it, and then Lars goes, if yeah. you needed me to do like a drum fill to figure out a lyric, I would do it for you. And James goes, yeah,
0: well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And then he, I love when James also says, he goes, I think he says something like that. It, it, like, if if you, if you you one of your arms was cut off, I wouldn't ask you to do a drum roll. Right. <laughs> Cord- I love how much shit they give each other in this documentary. It's really, especially the the James, Lars, Bob Rock kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's because it's kind of pre... It's like pre-them being worldwide superstars, which is going to change anybody. Yeah. It's going to change any relationship. It's going to change the way anyone relates to each other. So it's yeah. it's a little more chummy, you know? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're definitely kind of ribbing each other more than I've seen since then. Totally. Um, I did think it was interesting that Jason seems to be playing this like acoustic bass on The Unforgiven.
0: Yeah, I don't know if... Uh... I don't know if it made it to the master, but... Yeah, it could have been just for the scratch tracks while Lars was tracking drums or something. But I mean, you know, maybe they ran that thing direct into something and it just had this cool tone for what they were looking for. It sounds good. Yeah, Yeah. totally sounds good.
1: I, I, you know, we 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 talked about Jason a lot and Rob and all that stuff, and we're gonna continue talking about it forever. But it's nice seeing like, man, Jason's kicking ass in the studio, dude.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I love all his. And it's just you know, it's totally. And you know, it's it's really cool to see like his involvement and, in, in like him being there so much, like in comparison to what we know about justice, you know, it was like, I'm sure at some point Bob rock was like, Hey, this is your bass player embrace it. And he's a really good musician. Let's really channel that and get that low end back into Metallica that you need. You know?
1: I wonder if there was ever any like explicit talk about it. Like, okay, guys, elephant in the room here. Um, your last record is great. Justice for all metal classic. Um, let's put bass guitar on the new one though.
0: <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys think? I'm, just, what I'm just spitballing
1: here, but let's actually record bass guitar for this one and, and put it in the mix.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, then They, they d- you know, they do play a lot of cool uh, different guitars that you're not used to. I mean, they have their normal Explorers and like the Jacksons and this and that, but there's so many cool guitars they pick up and we talk about the baritone, you know, the acoustic bass. There's one where Kirk's playing like a big hollow body Gibson. Yeah. I mean, J- James plays a Gretsch on, I think it's for... Nothing Else Matters. Uh, no, nothing yeah, Else Matters, it's yeah. It's a white falcon. It's. I mean, stuff like that is so cool. That I mean, this is, here's this like thrash metal band making some new sound for them, and they're playing these guitars you wouldn't even be caught dead with. I know at, in metal.
1: Yeah, one of the things I love about uh, about all the videos we get to see and stuff is like those guys really love. They love how to. They love playing guitar. Like they love guitars. They collect cool guitars. They've kind of got their metal looking guitars for their image and stuff. But they have a yeah, bunch of cool sure. guitars. And you know, even in the one video, oh, yeah. Kirk's playing a fucking Strat, which is kind of weird.
0: He did that for a long time. There's a lot of footage. I mean, fucking Iron Maiden plays Stratocasters. Yeah, that's true. You know, true. I mean, you know, you know, there's you know, there's a mini humbucker installed in there, and it's not just like you know, Stevie Stevie Ray Vaughan tone with you know,
1: it's not just like a little little measly single coil. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, They showed the video for Unforgiven, which we're going to talk about all the videos on a subsequent podcast. I like the Unforgiven video a lot.
0: That's the only thing when I rewatch this documentary that I kind of just skip through because yep. I've seen those videos so many times, I, and it's kind of like, okay, this is nothing new, you know, kind of thing.
1: I did it too. Um, let's see. After that, is that when they have the kids come in? When do they have the oh uh, the make
0: a, the the make a wish stuff?
1: Yeah, which is really cool. Like some kid who had cancer was a huge Metallica fan, came in with his family, and they like played four. That was really cool. They played four Horsemen with him and stuff.
0: I know, it's so cool. I mean, I I don't know, uh, you know, what ended up happening to that kid, if he beat cancer or not, but I mean, what a cool thing to do, like, especially, like, when that record came out, like, I got to go in there and, like, hang with Metallica while they were making the Black Album, and, like, his wish was to do that and hang out with those guys, and they honored it, which is awesome, and I love what Jason says. He was like, you know, i like to think that, you know, we gave him a little something extra, you know you know, worth fighting for to get through this.
1: Yeah. And he kind of, yeah, he wraps it up by saying, you know, it was a good day. I mean, yeah, that's great, man. It's so cool that they make time for that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Another, and you know, another of the many reasons why they've always been a great, you know, fan friendly band. Now, Clint and I have not been invited to the studio yet. And we're trying to do that, you know, we're, but make a wish foundation won't return our emails.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm currently actively trying to get cancer just so I can maybe hopefully get in there. one. (laughs) My Gosh,
0: okay okay sorry i hope lightning doesn't strike your house
1: i hope it does then maybe i can get a make a wish foundation and go to see, to see the oh man. there you go
0: a severe uh, thunderstorm warning in nashville tennessee yeah, clint light- wells is struck by lightning light- yeah, lightning Meets struck Metallica. me and,
1: and burned my butt off so make a wish is is honored if
0: that, you, you, if that happened to you if that happened to you could literally say i rode the lightning
1: oh i rode the lightning just to come meet you dudes uh, yeah,
0: they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, I literally.
1: We mentioned this on the Black Album episode, but there's a section here where James actually explicitly talks about how they they wanted to work more on singing, actually performing a vocal rather than his kind of barky, metally thing. Right, uh, which I like. I mean, it paid off in rich, rich dividends, I believe, to have him. And you can see it, dude. When they're, I don't, I don't remember what song they're cutting, but I think they're doing Unforgiven and bob's like nope do it again you know we need a yeah. better unforgiven and he and you can see bob saying alright right. we're going to double that you know and they're all doing it to tape it's cool to see i'm glad they got those little moments of bob
0: working that way yeah for sure and he, and he even you know like james is trying obviously like a much softer you know vocal tone in his voice and then bob rock will occasionally be like you know just give us a little more Hetfield field on the end of that yeah know? a little more a little more yeah. of that growl yeah yeah a little more <laughs> when he does um,
1: woma well um, well on. on because <laughs> did Bob Rock do the cult? Did he produce that cult? I, record? I think,
0: I think, yeah, I think he did that. That's why he brings that one up,
1: which it's funny that James, like, I think James has actually a really good sense of humor, but it's funny that James tried to do it. Like, but in no place does woman as an ad lib work in fucking Metallica
0: songs. <laughs> Exit no, no. You, light
1: woman.
0: <laughs> we'll just stick with the Hetfield yaz and, and his little, how he ends phrases. I, I'm cool with what he's been doing. Yeah.
1: But your luck runs out, ta. Woman. Woman.
0: <laughs> but your luck runs out, woman.
1: When they start getting into the guitars, they talk about how they, they built what they call the Tent of Doom, which if you don't know, another side tidbit about recording stuff is like you can use these like foam panels. There's all sorts of like interesting ways you can treat a room. To get yeah. the best sonics, you can. There are diffusers and bass traps and things that absorb bass. But they built this what they call the tint of doom of these foam panels around all their amps, so you can kind of get that tight, crunchy thing. They can crank it, but it's not too y- much.
0: Yep. It's oh, cool yeah that they you're not getting any, any of that guitar sound like b- bouncing off walls and stuff like that and coming back into the microphone and causing audio issues that you you know aren't intending to get
1: how about old james hetfield's dad being in the studio while they're doing inner sandman overdubs
0: that was he you know he, he i love his little like bolo tie and yeah, stuff totally like, total texas but it was dude. cool yeah you know it was really cool to uh to hear his thoughts on like what he was working on at the time and You know, it's just such a dad thing. He's like, you know, uh, I think he's turned into a fine guitar player. He's doing pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's pretty good in there. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: which maybe for James was a huge compliment. I I don't know. I mean.
1: I'm sure it meant a lot to James. I mean, I know him and his dad. I don't know them, but I I know from what I've read that, you know, there was a lot of tension growing up with them and having to do with his mom and the Christian science shit. But it's cool that like his dad was in the room for them recording one of their biggest songs.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, and, you know, I'm sure his dad, like, wasn't necessarily, like, uh, uh, into the music and stuff like that, but he he had to, you know, at least I got the impression that it was a proud moment for his dad to watch James doing what he loves for a living, and he's in a successful band, and it's his job, you know?
1: But he did have, you're right, he kind of does have the same kind of Torben dad vibe of, like, he's not too impressed, you know? (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Exactly. You I'm to you. A, you know, you're
1: right. You can tell he's proud, but he's like, he's not, he's still got the dad vibe going on.
0: Yeah. He's doing around right with his little guitar.
1: Yeah. He, look at little Jamesy with his oh, little Oh, by the way, speaking of song. the
0: term little guitar. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so to rewind real quick, the, when the Make a Wish kid comes in and, and, and Kirk's being interviewed about it, he's like, I was sitting there and I was looking over and the, and the kid's got his little guitar I and know. I rewatched it and I go, Kirk, that's your guitar. <laughs> 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 His dainty orphan deluxe. Because they walk in the room with no guitars. He's got
1: his little guitar that
0: I handed him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Uh,
1: and this is kind of about the time where they actually show that little B room that Lars is in, like editing all his drum takes. It's going through reels yeah. and reels of tape. Man, that's that's a job, dude.
0: It's tedious, man. I, I've done I've done a couple records uh, earlier records that I've done with bands I've been in I, on tape. And watching the dude like edit drum tracks is like, I mean, it's science. It's a scientific process, man. You have to be so accurate, and like move the reels back and forth and hear like that just to find that one little part you have to cut. It's it's yeah, it's very tedious. So. Well, not only so, so pro- yeah. props to uh, to Randy Razorblade on that one. <laughs>
1: Randy Razorblade. Well, the thing is, not only the ability to to do it well, but to do it quickly.
0: Yeah, because totally. I mean,
1: they it is just burning cash to to you know it took them six months just to do the drums yeah Uh, Jason's like in his car and he's I I did think this was kind of prescient because you know he has that big moment in behind the music when he's like people say Metallica sold out he's like yep every venue and every city we go to Metallica you know yeah but this is like eight years before that and he says you know people accuse Metallica of selling out he said they're going to find out they can't predict what we're going to do ever and that has turned out that's turned out to be true yeah, man, totally has. When they get to Jason doing his bass stuff, they actually have to put those foam walls in between him and Bob Rock because the sound of his pick was so loud that they couldn't distinguish it from what was coming yeah. out of the monitors.
0: I mean, we've all seen live footage of Jason playing. I mean, he he hits the shit out of his bass. So when you're in a studio and you're the engineer and the producer, you don't want to hear this click tick click thing happening right behind you when you're trying to dial in a bass tone and get what's right for the record. So, yeah, I love the one where he, like, kicks it over and does, like, the freaking crane kick from Friday Kid. <laughs>
1: How do you feel about old Jason Newstead using a fretless bass on Nothing Else Matters?
0: I don't, you know, I don't love fretless basses, but that's one of the songs, like, when I listen to the record, I, it, it doesn't stand out as a fretless bass to me, um, like the way it does on Until It Sleeps, you know?
1: Bow, bow, um,
0: bow, bow. Yeah, I, I just, don't, I've never liked that sound. Personally, but, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bug me on nothing else matters. Cause I can't really in the mix of it. I can't really tell like, Oh, that's totally a fretless bass. Yeah,
1: it's true. I actually didn't know it was a fretless bass till I saw this. Yeah. Uh, kind of the same way you same. didn't know that it was, uh, James playing that solo till the, till you saw the nothing else matters video.
0: Yeah. When that video came out, I was like, Oh my gosh, James Hetfield can solo.
1: He's pretty good too. On that old guitar.
0: Yeah. On that little guitar.
1: Uh, <laughs> I do like when they're like doing nothing else matters. Obviously, it's like a big, beautiful ballad, one of their best songs ever. Uh, And Bob and they're—I guess they're like worried about it. And Bob's like, "Yeah, because the guys in Anthrax and Megadeth would tease them too much if it was, you know, melodic."
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that part. That's another great thing about Bob Rock, man. He like doesn't give a shit. He just—I know. He just said he says how it is, man. And that's what that's what the band needed.
1: He's just total, and they still need it. But yeah, he's just total Papa Bear in that shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is when they go over to do overdubs in Vancouver. Because I guess, you know, we kind of know a little bit about this from what we've read in, in like, Joel McIver's book and uh, Mick Wall's book. But th- shit got really tense during these sessions. They don't show it as much in the documentary. But when right. But when they're going to Vancouver, Lars is like, yeah, I guess Bob was, like, really needing to take a break from L.A. and... So they went up to his yeah, I mean, studio they, in Vancouver. Like you could kind of tell that Bob was like, "I, I got it. if you guys want to keep working, we have to go up to Vancouver for a week because I I need to get the fuck out of here."
0: Yeah, I, he needed a break for sure. I mean, you can yeah. There, there's a there's a little clip of him where he just looks so burnt out. I know. And then you see the footage of them you know of Hetfield flying to Vancouver. And I actually I actually love that it was just Bob Rock and Hetfield at first, so they could just the two of them could work. Because you know in the documentary they talk about it on numerous occasions where Lars likes to work at night. Hetfield is the opposite, right? So I feel like they got a lot of stuff done when it was just the two of them for like four or five days, I think, before Lars showed up. Um, I mean, that's where he did a lot of overdubs for like, you know, wherever I may roam and did like the Gretsch stuff. And you, you 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 see him, you know, playing different guitars up at Bob's studio doing all these other vocals. So I think that was a really good thing for the pr- progress of the record.
1: I do too. I mean, I don't know if they incorporate that kind of vibe into how they continue to make records, but I, I mean, James is the mastermind, right? So... Yeah. I think taking a few days just to focus in on with James. I mean, I think that's how they do vocals now. It, they'll they'll do yeah. just a day or uh, three days in a row of just James and vocals. But I like the idea of like just James and guitars and sounds, you know. Yeah. And I think it was in Vancouver where they, was it Vancouver or did they go back to 101 where they, you know, Bob brought that big ass percussion table for Lars and he,
0: he. I think that might've been back in LA. But he can't
1: even describe accurately what any of that shit's called. He's like, there were like these, there's like these wood things you bang on it and this little thing that you shake. And they're
0: like, damn Lars. Oh, he he had no idea what any of that stuff was, other than maybe the cowbell, the like tambourine, at one point, a like, shaker,
1: uh, you know, what
0: looked like a little like fake skull or something. He goes to hit it, and it's like bloop. It's like the worst. <laughs>
1: Blah, bloop, bloop.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that was so funny in that scene. I love when they're in Vancouver and Hetfield's overdubbing the cocking of a shotgun. Oh
1: yeah, what was that? What tune was that for? The God that Failed. What was tomb was that for?
0: Uh, I think it was the guy that failed. Yeah, that he does. Yeah, that's that it. Yeah,
1: yeah. God, that's so oh, it's cool. So good.
0: And that was for sure his idea because he's a big gun guy and stuff. So. Yeah, he probably had it in his goddamn suitcase. <laughs> he's carried it on the plane.
1: They do show. This, do you see that they show the? Did it? I don't even know if this made it to the recording, but they show a guy who looks just like Fabio. Yeah, playing these keys. synth strings on Unforgiven. Yeah. Did they keep? Is that in the recording?
0: I, I guess it is because I think the only like actual orchestral stuff w- was was uh, Nothing Else Matters, which was Michael Kamen.
1: Well, in defense of Fabio, uh, I, I, the scene that they show is him trying to figure it out, like figure out his part, but it sounds like shit.
0: It does, yeah. At one point, uh, I think the second clip they uh, show him, show of Fabio playing keys, <laughs> it, it, sa- it sounds more like samples of like a Mellotron. It sounds kind of cool for a second, but I mean I'm assuming it's still in there. I mean he was for sure one of Bob Rock's buddies. He lo- he looked like a guy that would wear a Bob Rock blouse shirt.
1: Yeah, he looked like he had he looked like he shopped at the Bob Rock uh, from the Bob Rock catalog.
0: Bob Recom Bob I can't even say it. I'm trying to do a pun. Bob Bob
1: Bobacombri Rock fitch. Bob
0: Rockcrombie and Rock. I don't know.
1: Yeah, man. Page I page thought, page, thought that one page <laughs> six of the Bob Rock catalog is white turtleneck, tight <laughs> as can be. Uh, blown yeah, out blown it, out white bleach blonde hair, fanny pack.
0: And definitely a scrunchie to tie your ponytail. <laughs> it wasn't just like a little rubber band. It was like kind of puffy in some scenes. And it's like tied like on the back of his head, like not down below, like where most ponytails are tied. It's like up there, where it like sticks out like a little waterfall.
1: But he's just a he's the dad, man. He's just got the dad vibe. Totally. Gotta get
0: We're cool with it. We're we're fine with Bob.
1: He's like passing out like hand sanitizer from his fanny pack at lunch and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone put this on your
0: hands. Oh my gosh, so good.
1: Uh, th- this is also where we see where he... So it seems like it's sort of towards the end of the record and they're all at dinner or something talking about. And Bob goes, he said, you guys have five songs on this record that are definitely Metallica classics and are going to be radio staples. Which I'm like, yeah. hell yeah, Bob, I love that confidence. But then he follows it by saying, but the first single's got to be holier than thou.
0: I know. Which, we've I think we've mentioned this before on the, Bla- on the Black Album episode, but like... I mean, can you imagine that being the first single? I mean, I think fans would be stoked, but I think fans would have been more let down had that been the first single. because yeah. it Because that's the more thrashier song on the record.
1: Inner Sandman's the clear, clear winner there.
0: Of course, yeah. It, it did okay. <laughs>
1: it did okay for them.
0: Uh, I, I, I remember buying the single of that and just being so excited.
1: Yeah, me too. Do you remember when, like, I remember buying the Black Album CD, but it was when the CDs came in those, like, big, long...
0: Things. Oh yeah, there, there was
1: like this s- weird box. such a waste
0: of waste of cardboard paper. <laughs>
1: Where you like think you're getting other shit, but it's just like this empty box.
0: Yeah, it, it was like three quarters empty, and the CD was like at the top or bottom. But I mean, I I don't know if they did that or like record stores. That was the thing, just for cataloging in the store. It was easier to thumb through or something. It definitely made the artwork like I mean, you have for for years and years, you have vinyl, and it's like a square covered. It's that's what you put your artwork on. Then you have cassettes and it's like a rectangle. So you have to adjust the artwork on certain things. And here we have this like extra long rectangle. So I'm sure designers were like, well, shit, like how do I, how do I do the, do the master of puppets, uh, artwork on this new format that we're putting out of, of CDs? Well, they,
1: their first attempt at it was a failure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The packaging that failed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're unforgiving oh, man. for sure. Uh, so then we get to what you and I have talked at length about this, but Arguably, yeah. the the climax of the doc is this Kirk Hammett unforgiven solo. It's kind of brutal to watch.
0: It's dude. It's 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 when I when I, I I rewatched it again last night and this morning on the bus coming into Houston, it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Like he really rails him hard about this thing. But again, Bob Rock coming in strong. I mean, that's why we got that amazing unforgiven solo.
1: But it. Yeah, but even before Bob Rock starts doing it, it's like Kirk. I guess l- l- splits for a second. And Lars is like, this thing you're asking him to do, he can't do it. Like, it's not the way he plays. Yeah. And Bob's like, well, he's going to have to, you know, Bob is like, he didn't do his homework, you know? And, yeah. and he, yeah. Like this is the stuff where Bob's like the hero because he, he says, yeah. uh, he's got to eat, sleep and breathe the solo until it's done. Songs like this deserve that.
0: Exactly. And that's a great point he makes. That's- I love that. And, uh, I know that when they show him finally, recording what is pretty close to what we hear on the record. It, it had to have been a bit I don't know if it was days later or what, because I didn't notice for the first time this morning that he's, you know, riling about the solo. He's playing some shitty stuff. Lars is in the back cover in his ears. Yeah. And then when, and then when he finally says, you know, we're, we want that guitar player of the year solo, I noticed Bob rocks in a different t-shirt. So I think it was like a different, I don't know. He probably developed it for a little longer before they inserted that clip into the documentary.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think they probably worked on it for a week. And and there's oh, yeah. definitely I mean, a point where Bob gets really frustrated. He's like, "All right, so you just want to slap whatever, slap anything on this song," and yeah. he's like, "All right," because I guess they're arguing about the dynamic. Should the solo sort of start down here and work its and have a peak, or Kirk and Lars were wanting it to sort of come out of the gate hot and blah blah blah. Yeah, and Bob says, "All right, well, impress me." He says, "Do whatever you want, Kirk." Cut to the chase and fucking play. Let's hear the guitar player yeah. of the year solo. Like I love that love that part. And it's just got some teeth to it, like woo hoo
0: hoo. And as we know, I mean what the the you know, the, the final product of that solo is I mean I mean it's one of Kirk's finest moments in Metallica's career.
1: Yeah, and he even says in the film, he's like, I'm really proud of that. I'm like, Yeah, Bob Rock should be really proud of that. <laughs> yeah.
0: I just can't imagine what solo would be on there if Bob Rock just said, Yeah, that's fine.
1: I mean he could have he seemed frustrated enough too but i'm I'm so glad that he just duped it out with those dudes,
0: but that's you know as you and I both know, like you know having recorded so many times over the years, i mean sometimes that's what 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 brings out something so special and unique and and something that you sometimes can't duplicate you know from a producer like pushing you hard and hard and hard, you know I know that i my first experience in that was when I was a drummer in my very first band, and I had this producer like i mean totally Bob rock me, like telling me I sucked and all this stuff. And I was trying to play busier and I was supposed to play something even, you know, really simple. And, you know, it, it ended up, you know, affecting my entire way of playing and thinking and music. And it's, it's, I still, I still learn from that all the time and I still keep it with me. So good on Bob rock for pushing Kirk that hard.
1: No, I agree that one of the, one of my, my proudest moments on a record is I did a Bob Schneider record a few years ago called, uh, Oh my God, what's that record called? Oh, it's called King Kong. And there's a song on it called Montgomery with this kind of big guitar moment, and me, yeah. it was just me and the producer, my friend Dwight Baker, and man, he was push, he was, it was kind of similar unforgiven treatment. And once we finally yeah. started to land on what it was, I would sort of nail like one bar of it, and then botch the second bar, and I would want to just punch in. He was like, "No, we're going to do the, the whole solo is going to be one take. So that's awesome. You're just going to keep doing it until you get it. And it's kind of a long solo." So I would would like do it and love what I did until like the last bar and I would clam it and he's like, no, do it again. You're going to keep doing it. You're good. But that's
0: what I mean, that's what brings out like the feel of of a part in a song. You know, I mean, if you just keep punching it. He was absolutely right. That's awesome.
1: Um, Okay. So then they show the video for Nothing Else Matters. We've all seen that a million times. That's definitely a -a skipperoo, especially because it's just basically like the same footage of the documentary. Right. Yeah. Which seems kind of like I don't know. That seems kind of lazy to me. They could have actually had a really I, cool video for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess, at the, I guess at the time, I mean, let's just include that in there just to, to add time to the documentary or something like that. Cause I mean, you know, most of these videos had already come out. Yeah, that's right. But, but you know, it's still cool. I still like that video. It, I just, I just skip ahead when I watch the documentary cause I've seen the video way more times. Yeah,
1: I'm with you. I skipped all that shit too. Uh, then they show them mixing it at AM Studios. This is when B- uh, Bob infamously refers to "Sad but True" as the cashmere of the
0: '90s. Yeah,
1: <laughs> which you know, I kind of agree with that.
0: I mean, it kind of is. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a good like slow tempo, groovy, groovy, heavy song like Cashmere is.
1: And back to the uh, the Bob Rock fashion catalog in this scene he's wearing a leather baseball cap. <laughs> no life to a leather baseball caps.
0: A leather and, and and throughout the documentary Lars wears those like almost see-through very bright colored hats and like his bill is up in the front it, it's not even like a skater hat it's like maybe it's like a tennis thing i don't know but they're like i remember seeing those in the 80s growing up i
1: was about to say it's, it's you know what i'm
0: talking about oh yeah
1: it's it's that it's sort of the lost time between the late 80s and early 90s there was the sort of dark yeah the dark period where there was that yeah there was, some le- there was some
0: some leftover pizza still in the fridge there from the 80s some
1: leftover pizza with some rotten anchovies on it for sure <laughs> definitely <laughs> All right, then they show the mastering of the record, which mastering is basically when... So the record is mixed. Every They've gotten everything that they want to sound the way it sounds. Mastering is where they basically take... Um, it's sort of the last step of compression, where they sort of... All the highs, they bring them down. The lows, they bring them up. So that it's sort of one static listening experience. Yeah. Uh, it's not like *Sabbath* True is super loud, but Unforgiven is super mellow. It, it brings everything right. sort of to the same kind of playing field right that was just like the shittiest description yeah. of mastering ever
0: <laughs> how about this uh bad mastering is like death magnetic oh yeah true good mastering is like the black, black album. album yeah well i i, sh- I should retract that because uh the the poor guy that that had a master death magnetic was dealt a pretty bad hand and and the mixes got sent to him way too loud as we talked about on the episode
1: yeah and that's, so yeah, I, you guys get it. That's what mastering. But that's is. why people say that, like, <laughs> you know, people say that they want um, Death Magnetic remixed. But I don't think that remixing it would solve the problem because the problem is, is the according to the mastering engineer, everything was brick-walled or recorded hot. Yeah. And so if, right. So if you if you if what you got down on tape, the the direct signal is hot like that. There's no fixing that in a remix.
0: Yeah. But they, you know when they when you know when that they've done a remaster for that on iTunes and like it sounds much better and we've talked about it in the past the unmastered versions from Guitar Hero sound better and this and that it's just you know hey man it's just what do you like on top of your pizza yeah. I'm cool with uh I'm cool with uh, just like a cheese pizza no mastering and just turn it up louder in my car and it sounds fucking awesome
1: yeah and i kind of like a little bit of ketchup and mustard on my pizza so
0: that's totally fine yeah no big deal they did, <laughs> and gross they
1: did that uh They did that kind of cool listening party at Madison Square Garden where they gave out like 20,000 tickets and they just played the record.
0: Yeah. And they were there. And I love when they show the dudes in line and the guy's like, you know, it it sucks. Like, we're here to listen to the record and the band's not even going to play. And the guy over his shoulder goes, the tickets were free.
1: I know. (laughs) What a voice of reason. I'm so glad they caught that.
0: I know. And, you know, you and I both, if they did something like this in Nashville, we would totally go. Of course, if they were there, we would be like, yeah, it'd be cool if they played. But fuck, free tickets to go hear the new Metallica record with nineteen thousand other people.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: Oh man, I thought that was awesome.
1: Yeah, it was a cool and idea. And I think,
0: I think, um, I think they mentioned in the documentary, or it's like a clip of Tabitha Soren from MTV News saying at the time it was maybe still to this day one of the biggest you know listening parties ever. Because uh, most of the time it's in like you know a record executive's office, you know, in the top floor, and there's like ten people in there. I didn't hear
1: anything you said after Tabitha Soren. <laughs>
0: Did, did my audio cut out? No,
1: no I used to, I just used to have a big oh, crush. oh, just
0: cause she. Oh, I used to have a big crush uh, she's on tap big, of the Soren. She's a total babe.
1: She's like a total great early '90s babe.
0: Oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, there was a couple of the uh, the MTV news girls that were were crush worthy for sure. What was the other girl? Kennedy. The blonde girl, Kennedy. Uh,
1: remember Kennedy? No,
0: post wait, you know, it's after that. She, I remember Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, you got you know, there, there's also Downtown Julie Brown back in the day. She was a babe. <laughs> yeah. Adam Curry was a babe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Kurt Loader was
0: a total babe. Oh, Kurt Loader, he, he he was kind of like a he was like a like a, a good looking old man, you know. He was. Just, this is getting weird, he, by the way. He was
1: just like such a serious like <laughs> journalist on MTV News. It's like, come on, Kurt. He was. Let the let hey your... man,
0: but he. I mean, he was the dude that ended up uh you know reporting the news of Kurt Cobain yeah. quote unquote killing himself. Oh, you put it in quotes, huh? I had to because you know we'll have to start a Nirvana podcast to talk about that <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they end the documentary they show the sort of the manufacturing plant where how they kind of make the vinyl which is actually pretty interesting it's cool that they included that and then they play I love that stuff, yeah. then they play the entertainment video which I skippity skip skip skipped because I've seen it a million fucking times oh yeah and then they they it kind of shows them doing Last Caress like having fun together
0: yeah which is cool and like
1: Kirk and Jason are singing it and stuff and
0: yeah no I thought that was great it's, it looked like they were just goofing around because Lars is around the mic doing, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Oh, I should go back to the drums," and runs back there and you know kicks into the song. But yeah, that was that was a cool moment to see. Like, you know, I'm not sure where in the timeline of of, of the recording process that was actually recorded, but it was cool to see them having a good time because there's so many you know parts in the documentary where they're all at conflict and like you know at each other's throats here and there. So it was cool to see them all just having a good time.
1: I believe that part of it was recorded in 2011.
0: I think you're right. When <laughs> Jason came back and grew his hair out and they all grew their hair out and yeah. Kirk had his little guitar. His little guitar <laughs>
1: to get that fanny pack for Bob. Oh, yeah. Uh, what are the chances Bob's going to produce another Metallica record? What do you think?
0: Uh, I don't know, man. Fiddleman, I mean, Fiddleman crushed it on Hardwire, dude. So I I, I don't know. Maybe a, maybe a co-production thing.
1: But Greg's. Kinda, I don't know if you'd want to. But Greg's kind of like Robert in the sense that we love Robert. Robert did a great job. Robert's the bass player of Metallica. But if Jason came back, yeah. it'd be bye bye bye, Robert. Bye bye. See ya. Bye bye.
0: Agreed. Yeah. I, yeah, it's probably the same for Filman too. If if I mean, I personally would love to hear hear a, a Bob Rock production with Metallica again. I mean, saying anger aside, I mean, like black album load and reload sonically sound fucking great. Yeah.
1: They do, man. Uh we did it. We talked about this whole film.
0: Congratulations, Clint.
1: Congratulations, Ethan.
0: Uh, we're gonna You know, it is it is fun talking about stuff like this as opposed to an album or a member, uh, like when we did the Through the Never episode. It's just fun to kind of go through the timeline of these things, rewatch them, um, and, you know, and, and often pick up on things that you forgot about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have Bob Rock's uh, white turtleneck just sort of blazed into my consciousness now. I'm going to start dressing like him. What do you think about that? <laughs> What do our fans think about that? Uh, well. Uh, should we should Ethan and I start dressing like 1992 Bob Rock? Because we'll do it.
0: I, uh, I'm, I'm on the fence still, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, you know. Good. I don't know. I'll say this. I'll try anything twice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Except St. Anger. You won't try that twice.
0: Oh, I'm going to have to when we do that episode. I'm going to have to try it a few times.
1: Speaking of the next um, episode, so we're going to do, uh, next week we're going to do part two. We're going to just keep this party rolling.
0: Yeah, this is a, yeah. we'll do the sequel next week, uh, do the part two, which goes into the whole touring cycle of the Black Album, uh, Jason hoarding sandwiches to take back to the hotel room, things like that.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. And then we're going to top it all off. It's kind of like becoming the month of Bob Rock, because then we're going to do our Bob Rock episode.
0: Yeah, this is Bob Rock month, apparently. This is a new thing. We just started right now. <laughs> so, so ha- hey, Clint, ha- happy Bob Rock month. Happy Bob Rock month. Happy Fanny, Man, what happy a great fanny month. Pack guy month thing. <laughs> For those Australian listeners uh, tuning in, that's also called a bum bag. A bum fanny bag. Fanny means something else. I, okay, I learned this the hard way. I, uh, with my old band, we were doing like an interview in front of like fans, and I, something came up, and I mentioned the word fanny pack, and everyone just started cracking up, and I was like, "Wow, I didn't think it was that funny." And I said it a few times, got laughs every time. And then afterwards, some fan came up to me and like, "Do you know what fanny means down here?" I was like, "No," and they go, "Uh, it means vagina," and I was like, "Oh." So I was saying, vagina pack the whole time.
1: Yeah, that's very different than than our vernacular for that, for sure. Yes,
0: very different than the U.S. version. So, for Australians out there, bum bag it is.
1: I'm gonna get a vagina pack too, though. I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's 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 say goodbye. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to the let's show. We appreciate each and every one of you. If you can take the time to go leave us an iTunes review, it means a lot, and we're gonna send you some free shit if you do. Uh, yep. metal, your podcast show at gmail.com is our email address and the best way to get in touch with us. We read 10 of those emails or every episode, even if we don't read yours on the episode, we're going to respond to it more than likely. And then we're on all the other bullshit. Today. Correct.
0: Yep. All the other bullshit. You can find us on bullshit.
1: Just look up bullshit. Go to bullshit.bullshit.org And, uh, we'll,
0: we'll, <laughs> we'll, it's actually, I changed it to. Dot. .gov. .gov.
1: Yeah, yeah. We got, well, we, got yeah, the, .gov. we got the state to sponsor it. So bullshit.bullshit yeah. bullshit And, uh, send us a bullshit and we'll, hopefully get back to you with bullshit it's
0: (laughs) I can't top I can't top that outro Clint (laughs) alright everyone thanks for listening see you next week thanks for listening peace
1: if you were our advisor what would you say then I would say delete that